Thanks for tuning into the Life in the Front Office podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kirschman. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And thanks to Suja Organic for their support. Remember, you can get 15% off any one-time pack on shop.sujajuice.com with the code LIFO, L-I-F-O. And enjoy today's episode. Welcome to today's episode on the Life in the Front Office podcast presented by Suja Organic. Excited to have my co-host and Andy Dolich and our guest today and Marty Conway, uh, VP of Sponsorships at MNT Bank. And excited to just talk about uh, Marty's career path, his journey, and ultimately uh, what he's up to today. So nonetheless, Andy, Marty, welcome. Uh, always good to see you, Jake and uh, Marty. We go back, uh, I don't know, decades, right? Decades. Let's just call it decades. We've Absolutely. seen we've seen the business grow from a little acorn to a mighty oak. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you want to throw the first pitch? <laughs> yeah, he's ready for the first pitch. So in give us give us a quick GPS on where you started and yeah. where you are. Yeah, so I'm a proud Ohio University graduate, as you know, many people are, and you know that, which I knew nothing about Ohio University until I got there for an interview. Um, it was this magical place somewhere that you apply to. And when I heard that I got was granted an interview, you know, I got in my car, I actually used a map, Andy, Jake, a map, you unfold it, you look at where Athens is, and you go there. Um, and so yeah, I, you know, that's where I I had worked for a minor league baseball team when I was started at 16. Um, and mainly because again, my parents were season ticket holders for the Syracuse triple a team. And I hectored the general manager for two years until he said, I can't hire you until you're 16. Um, and so that was what I got going. Um, baseball was my first love still is my first love. And that's how I got involved. Hey, Marty, that up. real quick, real quick time out, because everyone's yep. got an interview story from Athens. Sure. Like going through the program, there's always <laughs> a story about their interview process. Yeah. yeah I, honestly, as a kid from unwashed Syracuse, New York, just going there, I didn't do any preparation. I didn't know what they might ask me. I, I didn't know any of that. But I will tell you this, an interview story connected to our university, that when I got there, and I was all about baseball. I applied to this thing in the commissioner's office called the executive training program. And as part of that, I was selected for at least a regional interview. And my regional interview was in Cincinnati with the general manager, Dick Wagner. Oh, yeah. Serious when guy, there, Dick Wagner. When I got there, Andy, he made me wait and iced me. You talk about icing the kicker. He iced me for about 50, 45 minutes just waiting. And then when I got in there, I just remember a lot of questions. And again, and he asked me this question, which I always tell students, and I never forget this question. He probably asked me 50 other questions, but he said, do you read? And I said, yeah, I, you know, I like to read the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, whatever I, you know, whatever I can get. And he said, do you, do you think the New York Times is a conservative or liberal paper? <laughs> and I just went, uh... I honestly, that's like the Google questions today, you know, where they ask somebody, how many fire hydrants are there in you know, Manhattan or something? And I, I didn't even know. So I cobbled around to answer it in a way that probably didn't suit him. But anyhow, 
I, I, I should have said it's all the news <laughs> that's fit to print, Mr. <laughs> you know, I was in my early 20s. My idea of liberal or conservatism was, you know, I didn't know anything about that. So, but I managed to get through that as part of that interview process at OU and connected to OU. But uh, honestly, yeah, I could not remember anything. I just remember getting a letter in the mail. <clears throat> at that point, we had mail and uh, said, you've been accepted for the uh, August beginning. And that was in May or June. And I scrambled everything together and got out there and got on my way. So was it uh, Stumpy Stewart? Was it, who was, who was no, the was, head of the program? Oh, well, it was uh, Owen Wilkinson and, and Doc Higgins were there. Okay. And then right. Andy Kreitzer. Okay. Um, those were the three. I'm pretty sure those were the three yes. in my interview. And maybe there was a student there as well. Doc's um, always Doc's always got a hard question for somebody. Oh, yeah. I, I was not, by far, I was not one of his favorite students, for, for sure. I'll just tell you that. So um, how, did you, how did you go from grad school to... Obviously, we'll, we'll cover a little bit of your yep. career, but also Professor Conway, too. Yeah. Well, what I like to do, yeah, so I'm currently and have been for the last 10 years or so an adjunct instructor at Georgetown University, first in the School of Continuing Studies for graduates and now also in the undergraduate business school as well. And what I like to do, one of my hobbies is I like to attempt to work at places that I could never get admitted to as a student. So I'm looking for other Ivy League institutions that might take me because I couldn't even apply to Georgetown. But um, my my friends from high school, when I go back for various events, then they say, "You're you're teaching at Georgetown." They, they, I just don't remember you as a very good student. And I said, "That's because I wasn't." As I a say student. Stanford. They go, "Yes, <laughs> Samford in yeah. Georgia, not Stanford." Yeah. yeah. So no, I really got involved in teaching by accident. They had a number of adjunct instructors. And uh, there was an issue with a couple of them because the, the Washington Nationals were going through some changeover at that point. And someone came to me and said, we have this course starting in late May. We think you'd be good for it. You could, you know, we'll help you with the academic piece and all that. And from that point on, I just kept getting more and more involved to, like I said, now doing also some undergraduate programs and professional development and had the opportunity to teach in Qatar for three and a half years on and off. Um, so a number of different things that could have never, there was just no playbook for that. I mean, the, I'm the accidental academic is what I refer to myself. So we've got three Bobcats on the podcast, three professors. Yeah. Are you, are you an author as well? Uh, no, I'm not an author uh, of anything. Two authors. Dang. I thought we were going on a good track there. But Marty, well, we can, the next book that Jake and I write, we'll give you a call. You can join the team. That'd be awesome. Marty, it's, it's interesting. You get the question when you are an adjunct professor, you get the question from people. They go, yep. how do you get into that? How do yep. I do that? Yep. Now, it sounds like you kind of fell into it a little bit, but if you had advice for those now that you've been in it for 10 years, uh, to those that are in the, in the industry that have an interest in teaching, yep. how do they get into uh, that sort of thing? Does it, does it have to be local? Can it be regional, national? Yeah, well, it's changed a lot. I would have said, even when I started, it would have had to be local. You would have had to be connected to it. Today, 60% uh, of what I teach is online. Most of it is distance learning in some way, shape, or form. So it no longer uh, meets that. But you know, do you meet the criteria, first of all, to teach there? In some cases, you have to have a master's, doctorate, whatever it is to do that. Um, I happened, when I was at AOL, I happened to also um, spend four years getting my MBA at night. So I added that along the way. 
which I think probably helped as well. But it, it really is, um, look, it's great for people. They, they are interested and you stand in front of the room or you, you, know, you give lectures and they're interested in that, but they pretty quickly figure out whether you're really there for them or you're really there for yourself. And I think the biggest difference is if you're there for them, if you're interested in those young people um, and you can put yourself in their shoes, uh, if that's possible, because a lot of what you're going to deal with isn't just preparing for the lecture, isn't just preparing for your whatever you're doing. It's really working with them on a one-off basis um, on their career. What do they want to do? They, they, want, they want your time and they want to know how you got involved and what they could do and how the industry is set up today, what they should do <clears throat> on their own to help themselves get set up for the industry. So I think that it's the classroom piece is one thing, but the time spent with students is really where people, um, I think, have to have a passion for. And I say that word, I don't try not to use it very much, but I think you have to have a strong interest in helping people develop. Um, and that's going to be frustrating at times because not everybody's going to do what you ask them to do uh, for sure. Um, but I, I get more benefit, I get more pleasure from hearing from students later as they progress into the industry one way or the other somewhere of just keeping that tie uh, because I know at some point they're going to come back and ask for advice again and you know direction because I think that's important. And it's uh, you know it's it's the three letters ABN always be networking yeah. you just never know and yeah. although you're still a young puppy working with students is an incredible way to be educated yeah, instead of losing connectivity. Yeah. And uh, before we get into some topic areas, can you just touch point, you're a man with many business cards. Um, <laughs> can you go through some of your stops along the way? Yeah, sure. So I mentioned uh, that I did get into the um, executive training program and Normally, they take two students every year. Prior to me, they had taken two young people into the program. When I got there, they had three. And I, again, I'm not, I wasn't that aware, et cetera. Who was the commissioner then? Uh, that was, it was Bowie Kuhn when I started. And I, during my time, Peter Ubroth became the commissioner. So I was there for the transition. Um, but my third, it was John Cordova, who went on to work at um, the Coca-Cola and Milwaukee Brewers. And that third was Wendy Seeley. And uh, so they, we had three that time. And, you know, I eventually put two and two together on that, <laughs> but that was our, that was our class, so to speak. And again, the objective was to, at that time, push you out into the field somewhere, somehow. And I credit Peter Ubroth with connecting me in Baltimore. Um, I went with him to, um, I think it was an owner's meeting or something in Baltimore. And, uh, he, he made a passion pitch to Ed Williams to say, you should interview this kid. Um, I think he can help you. And so that's what led to that opportunity with the Orioles. Yeah, let's not gloss over Ed Williams, <laughs> one of the most powerful attorneys yeah. in the United yeah. States, owner yeah. of the Washington Redskins at yes. one point, right? Yeah. And not somebody to be trifled with in any way, oh, shape, or No, time. I mean, when they, you know, when they talk about you know, sometimes they throw around the phrase, the smartest guy in the room, Ed Williams, Edward Bennett Williams was the smartest guy in the room in every room that he was in. Um, and uh, he just was a fascinating character. Larry Lacchino was his right-hand person running the ball club and things like that. So again, I had, 
I had the opportunity to just be around those people, to listen, to learn, to sort of get trained in their approach on things. And that was at a point where, as you know, the Orioles could have gone either way. The Colts had left town. Um, there was a lot of uh, discussion about the Orioles. The lease was coming up at the end of 30 years. We did a short-term lease. And then the question was, okay, what's next? Which ultimately led to the decision as we were talking about earlier with William Donald Schaefer, the mayor, stepping in along with some other important people from the state and generating that agreement that not only kept the Orioles in town, but I tell people that agreement with the state also included at legislation, also included funding for the football stadium at that time. And so they didn't have to go back later and say, oh, we have an opportunity to get the Browns, you know, do this. It was already in place. And so that legislation, so we had a period of about- and It was a perfect, uh, I'm a serial interrupter as you both know. <laughs> right. it, was, it was a perfect example of teamwork, leadership and trust because yeah. people look at these massive facilities that are being built today in the multiple billions of dollars, but you had an elected official, Mayor Schaefer, you had the yeah. Orioles ownership, you had baseball, you had the community, mm-hmm. you had a quality organization. They came together to do this Every day it breaks my heart to see the Oakland A's drama being played out in terms of parallel path. Are they going? Are they staying? Because they don't have leadership, they don't have trust, and they don't have teamwork. That's all they're missing. Yeah. And also, I would, and you're absolutely right, I would add to that too, Andy, the humility, because these are really smart, powerful people in all of their own individual areas, politics, business, sports, et cetera. But I think the ones for me, the ones that, really get it done are the ones that have the humility to to know how far can we go how much is too much what what can we really get done you know because i i again we could have three podcasts about the number of things that could have been done in baltimore that weren't done um that maybe could have but people backed off at the right time and made that uh, opportunity between the governor the mayor um, the orioles other private business folks in baltimore as well who, who came together, but it took time. The Orioles had this designated hitter program that was selling tickets. Uh, these were individuals in the community working on behalf of the team selling tickets. It was just a community effort to keep that team there and keep it steady. And that is, that's a gift that not every community. Yeah, don't you laugh when people refer to Camden Yards as an overnight success from a yeah. historical yeah, standpoint. Exactly. Designated yeah. hitter program. That's so interesting. Yeah, the designated hitter program was one, because there was a risk, Jake, that the Orioles would leave town during that mid-80s time frame. And so um, the front office, uh, actually people came to the front office and said, we have this idea that we could take these, you know, 30 or 50 high profile, you know, leaders in the community and put them in a role, not contracted or not an employee of the team, but responsible for generating ticket sales, season ticket sales. And so these were accountants and lawyers and um, doctors and, you know, physical therapists and all that, who not only took responsibility for their offices tickets, but also friends and relatives and all that. And we built the point to where there were you know, over 20,000 full season ticket equivalents just from the DH program. And again, that was a real community effort. I don't know if it could be replicated again, but at the time it really worked. And for the longest time, that was the lifeblood of season and group sales for the Orioles. And um, obviously it got them to Camden Yards. Once it started selling out all the time, you know, it wasn't quite as important and I don't know where it stands today, but 
for its time, it was a real solid community effort, a lot of love, a lot of affection for the organization and for baseball. And that's why, or that's why it has survived in Baltimore, despite adding a team 40 miles to the South, losing 10 or 12 years in a row, things like that, that glue still exists within the community to, to keep the team here and as relevant as possible. And when they bounce back from this um, rebuild, um, then I think it's like what I tell people in Baltimore, it's like fandom in Baltimore is like Bermuda grass. It kind of goes dormant in the winter. It doesn't go away, but come spring when the team returns to better fortunes, they come back out in, in pretty strong numbers. And, that, and that's an important point that an overused DNA of a community you know, it's not a top 10 market. It's near Washington, D.C. It's sort of like Oakland and San Francisco. Yeah. But if you lose a Baltimore, if you lose an Oakland, that's never coming back again to the game. Right. And if you just look at the history of those teams, the players, the owners, what it means, Boog's uh, concession yeah. stand, it, you can't replicate that. And that's what's sad about today's world. It's like, let's just spend money and it'll be great. Like, yeah. no, 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 you're right. There's a lot of organic nature to that and, uh, um, you know, commercialization. So, um, but that, that's kind of where, um, you know, I, like I said, grew up through that um, after uh, a couple of stints in baseball. Um, uh, I had an opportunity to get involved in digital media um, so I went to work for America online, primarily in their sports area. Andy, you'll appreciate this. Those, when I first talked young, to them, for those young listening, AOL, what's, <laughs> what's that? AOL is an online service, um, that essentially if you, I, I call it like the yellow pages for the internet. Like if you didn't want to just open your browser and go to Yahoo, AOL was a service that for, uh, initially free, but then, you know, hourly rates to pay for. It was really the training wheels of the internet for people. Um, and uh, so I, I went there and they were so, um, uh, I guess, young in the space. They, Andy, they were thinking about doing some things in their channels and they were gonna have um, team pages and things like that. And I just simply said one day in an interview, do you have the rights to use their logo? And they said, <laughs> uh, do we have to get that? And I said, yeah, yeah you do. And I, I think I got an offer within 48 hours, literally. It was just simple. Wow, what a brilliant guy. He really <laughs> exactly. knows, the, he knows the industry. He has simple asked things. A, like you asked a simple question, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. You, were, you were curious. Yeah. Um, Marty, when you fast forward to mm -hmm. Baltimore, uh, the property you're you know, working on behalf now and the yeah. significance that that has with the stadium, yeah. the Ravens, right? We're talking about teams moving and so on and so forth. Um, what's it like to manage a naming rights partnership? Yeah. So it's really important because um, when M&T Bank bought a, a bank called All First Financial, which uh, was a um, bank in Baltimore in um, 2002, 2003, one of the things that they did initially smartly um, was to acquire the naming rights to the facility, which had only been, uh, had only the, the Ravens came in 96. So I think it was about 2000, only been a couple of years. And they had one of those dot coms that blew up uh, on the on the um, PSI net initially, and when they went out of business after 2000, it was available. So MNT took that responsibility, and a part of that was because MNT was a Buffalo-based headquarter bank coming to Baltimore, and literally this is the path of you know 
what you would expect is to anchor yourself with a community icon like the Ravens, like the new stadium. And I would say it's probably one of the best investments that not only the team, the, uh, the institution, the bank, but also in all of sports, because you don't often have a second company come in and rename the stadium and have people think it was the original name. And that literally is it. No one remembers PSI net and everyone refers to it as M&T Bank Stadium, but it's a great platform. And I use that term again, I don't like to use that term too liberally, but it's a great platform for um, the organization M&T, you know, with customers, consumer banking, business banking, um, retail banking, all sorts of things to have that opportunity to engage with, quite frankly, right now, the number one sports property in the market um, because of their consistency that the Ravens have had over the last, you know, certainly 20 years, um, you know, a couple of Super Bowls, almost always being in the playoffs, always being exciting to do that. So it's important. The bank has other relationships in Buffalo. They don't have the name of the stadium. They're the official bank. We're the official bank of the um, Buffalo Bills. So there's only a few places where putting a name on really makes sense. But in Baltimore, it does. Because if you're familiar, you come in off 395, the first building you see is the stadium and you see the M&T Bank. So when you poll people, most people in Baltimore believe M&T Bank is a local bank, not somebody that's headquartered in Buffalo operating in Baltimore. And that's, that's been 20 years in the making and a lot of it has to do with the name on the stadium. You've, you've given me a, a great opening for a question. First, I'm gonna create a board game of all the different stadium, ballpark, and arena names of the last 40 years. Yeah. It'll be in the hundreds, correct? Yes, it will and, be. And, and when you name some of these com companies, people will go, what? What was that? I, yeah. that comp and right. companies that are completely out of business. So yeah. Yeah. the question is, as you're um, integrating your coursework with your students, how would you grade their institutional knowledge of hmm. the business? I mean, not, oh, this is what happened a week ago or a year yeah. ago, yeah. but you know, talking about Camden Yards, how the business has grown, what's their institutional knowledge and what is their sort of golden ring that they're looking at in their potential careers? Yeah, um, I would describe it, you know, it's a mile wide and an inch deep. We've heard that phrase before, and that is their depth on things is literally, you know, less, less existent. So absolutely. Maybe I'm being generous as a greater or a B minus in their overall aspect. And we sort of start with that. I like to start with any of the student populations that we work with is sort of tell me what, you know, first, and then we'll start from there. I'm not gonna start from any particular point, assuming you know or don't know to do that. But the number one thing, and this won't surprise anybody, that they are gonna see things through the prism of their channels, um, um, social media apps, whatever it is, there's not, a, there's not much, there are some, there's not much in the way of wider knowledge and, and right now what do you read right do you ask them what do you read <laughs> yeah exactly and i i i say this you know my parents would say to me show me your friends and i'll show you your future i would say to my students now show me who you follow and i'll show you your future 
because you can't be what you can't see. And to the extent that you're not aware of what Andy would be publishing or Jake would be publishing or whatever. Um, and so that's where I start. I start with, here's the things that you must read every week. Um, and some are paid, some are not. And, um, and then I ask them to add three or four new follows every week. Um, I don't put any reins on that. I just say, you have to show us three or four new sources that you're following. It can be an individual, that's fine. Um, or it can be a publication or something else because there's plenty of quality information out there now that's just public electronically and there are a lot of smart people. Um, but I think that's the challenge is, Andy, there's not a bundle of newspapers where I can look at page one and also, by the way, look at page 19 when I'm on the train or on the plane or whatever we're doing, pretty much very narrow casted down into what their social followers or their athletes are doing. And then they sort of reflect that. So I think leading into yeah, that, that, you know, it comes to like, if you're looking at your career like this, yeah, you're in deep trouble. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and so to answer to, to go ahead, Jake. Well, the, the, the last thing I would say with this is, is what's interesting is there's also the blinders of just sports, right? Yeah. It's like there's mm -hmm. this whole yeah. world yeah. out there yeah. of business and real estate and fine. I mean, just you go down the list, right? Healthcare, yeah. et cetera. There's so many things you can learn from other industries that we just don't necessarily. <clears throat> yeah, we have a couple of aspects in our leadership class in particular, but others as well. And that is where we ask them particular units or things we cover where ask them for the external drivers to the industry. Tell me, is it consumer behavior? Is it economic downturns? Is it globalization? Like what are these other force factors that are absolutely going to impact your career, whether you think so or not at the moment, you may not feel like that to do it because if consumer behavior is changing and your organization isn't changing at the same rate of change, then you're probably going to be in trouble. The other area that we get into with them, which is we, we spotlight as much as possible people who have come in, individuals, men and women who have come into the industry from outside of sports and what they've done and the catalyst that they've been. And we have a couple of assignments around that. We do things. So I don't care whether it's Jerry Jones or whether it's Mark Cuban or um, you name it. There's a whole host of other people who came into the sports industry and were a catalyst for change because of where they came in. Andy knows for sure that the path to sports ownership when we were working in front offices was largely around finance and real estate and some other areas like that sort of old money areas. Clearly now it's tech and media and all these other aspects. So no surprise that the industry reflects some of the most recent leaders, owners and leaders coming into the industry. And, and, you know, it works both ways. Being involved at fan-controlled sports and entertainment, fan-controlled football, um, when I first got involved and people just started throwing around NFT and NIL, and I go, yeah. can you say that? And, you know, out loud. Um, mm -hmm. And if you're not understanding what's coming, you're going to get run over by somebody that is more agile and nimble than you are. Yeah. Or when you say Bill Vec, because people are looking at cool promotions and go, yeah, that that was really cool. It was done 78 years ago by Bill mm -hmm. Vec. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to get them comfortable, again, working with uh, young folks, get them comfortable with 
being honest about what they don't know. And because oftentimes, you know, we're talking, we're doing, and I know that in their mind and they're sitting there because I used to do it as a student as well. I don't really want to ask that question. As soon as I ask the question, I reveal to everybody what I don't know or where I didn't come from. And uh, one of my pet peeves, and when we introduce students, and the, you'll, you'll know this, it's happened, you've seen it, they'll get up and they'll talk about you know, where they're from and different things. And then when they get to talk about their school, their university, in our case with the graduate students, they'll talk about where they came from. I would say three out of every 10 that get up to talk, they'll say, well, I came from a small school in, and I say, stop, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. I know Andy's better at interrupting than I am maybe, but I'll say, stop. There's literally no such thing as a small school in you know, Ohio, Mississippi, whatever it is. And I, you know, we go down through the story of Mark Zuckerberg dropping out, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, on and on and on down through there, that it doesn't make any bit of difference how you got to Georgetown. You're here now. And I don't want you to start to think that because you came from Hood College and Frederick, Maryland or wherever, that you're not as worthy as somebody that came from Dartmouth or Yale or Virginia and that mix. So that's another element as well is there's those kind of self-awareness elements that um, are just apparent today. And um, it doesn't matter how you got here. And once we start to share with them some of those stories, then suddenly they, they sort of drop that, um, you know, issue that they have. Yeah. How many times have we had to correct people? No, it's the Ohio University, not Ohio State <laughs> University. Exactly. Or, or Ohio University, not University of Ohio, right? Yeah, exactly. One in yeah, the yeah, two. Yeah. But yeah. Um, Andy, any last thoughts as we wrap up today? Um, yeah, I, I being in, in a classroom and uh, interacting with the leaders of the future. Um, what are you most enthused about? And what's the question mark that pops up in your thought bubble? Yeah, I'm most enthused about their willingness to try something new. Um, and that is they're, they're willing to get involved in communities. Um, like I said, mobile applications, take on things that I, I, you know, I was looking, I was concerned about the name on the door or the name on the stadium, right? That was, that was what we thought of as success, was aligning ourselves with the Orioles or whoever it was. That, then we'd made it. Um, I think there's more willingness today to go into areas that are not name-worthy, that you don't know so much about. And they're, they're, so they're much more willing to take that chance earlier in their careers on some things that you might say, hmm, you know, I'm not really sure about. Um, my <laughs> My questions, my question marks for them are, are, as I said, is what's your learning plan? When you leave here, what's your learning plan, right? I, I think that you need to, about every five years, as I call it, recertify. Um, I don't know what you want that recertification to be. Um, I'll often tell them, uh, I need you to, within five years, I think you should learn a language. And they look at me like, well, I'm not going to study German, I say, no, I don't mean, oh, you can do a spoken language if you want. I need you to think about a programming language, right? What aspect of, of Google or, or other areas that you, you know, to grow yourself. And then I point them in those job descriptions to the bottom area where it says skills required for the job and tell them they have written that to keep you out. You understand? They've listed these skill sets to keep you from applying. 
your responsibility going forward is to gain those. Look at those. Oh, I need to do email marketing. I learned it. Like those are the languages of our business going forward that I would encourage you every five years, as I say, to recertify. And um, I went back to school once and that was for an MBA. I probably should have gone more frequently. Um, but I, I think that's the question that I have is what's your learning plan after you leave here? Um, how often are you willing to recertify? And because you don't, uh, the theme of what we talked about is what's coming. You don't know what it's going to be. The only thing you can do is prepare yourself uh, as strongly as possible. And that is language, whether it's spoken language or business language or other areas like that. So those are the things that I try to repeat, um, you know, as after we get to know students and we sort of get ready to send them on their way. Marty, really appreciate the thoughts, different perspectives, advice, insights uh, from the professor, professor yourself. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I'm sure it sounds like we've got plenty more conversations to have in the. Oh room. yeah, we got to talk about what the hell's a Hoya, right? At a... <laughs> yeah, talk about things that are made up. You're right. It's just and and we didn't get to it, but you know, in the Big East Conference in a non-football school out yeah. here, every brain is exploding with the USC UCLA oh, yeah. conference moving. And uh, I've written a new piece. I don't know if it's going to end up being published, but. I've developed the SAC 12 conference, <laughs> the SAC 12. And people would go, I, I look at Jake like the SAC 12, what's that? The Student Athletic Conference. Yeah, yeah, right. right? Andy right. always has the best acronyms. SAC, baby. Yeah. Student, remember student athletes, remember students. Remember them. Yeah, by the way, oh, don't, yeah. No matter if we're paying them in NIL money, whatever, don't forget, they yeah. they really... Well, uh, thank you, uh, Marty. We will, uh, this will be a uh, monthly session uh, with, with Marty because he's reached the heights of educational capabilities. Thank I don't know about that, but I, I enjoyed my time with you guys and look forward to it in the future again. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for listening to the Life in the Front Office podcast presented by Suja Organic. Remember, you can get 15% off any one-time pack on shop.sujajuice.com with the code LIFO, L-I-F-O. And remember, if you like this episode or you like the Life in the Front Office podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Really appreciate you tuning in and stay tuned for the next one.